Thanks for listening to What the F*** is Biodiversity. My name is Jamie, and I work for the NGO, the National Environmental Treasure. We're spreading the word about the impact of biodiversity loss and how we can all protect our planet. Throughout our podcast series, we will explore the amazing world of biodiversity, why it's so vital for humans, what is causing its decline, and of course, tangible solutions for its conservation. Today's guest is Bob Peart, a biologist and educator who has worked in the environmental field for almost 40 years. From park management and land use planning to environmental education and nonprofit work, he's done it all. He's a former executive director of the Sierra Club BC, as well as the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. He's also the former board chair for Nature Canada. Over the years, he has volunteered with Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada, and the Grasslands Conservation Council of BC. During today's episode, Anne and Bob talk all about the environmental sector in Canada, different conservation initiatives taking place across the country, and how he stays hopeful in the face of so much doom and gloom. There's lots of great tidbits of information in today's episode, so make sure you listen until the end. Now, without further ado, here are Anne and Bob. Bob, you've been involved in the environmental movement for an awfully long time, and you were executive director for a long time of the Sierra Club, I believe. How many years were you involved with them? Well, I was at the Sierra Club about three and a half years as their executive director, but it was the third time I was an executive director, and the first time I said I'd never do it again. And so here I was. But um, I've always been interested in and I've always loved the outdoors. And so my goal when I went to university, I was at Guelph. Everyone else's goal was to get really good marks. My goal was to get uh, was to get a job. And so when I graduated, I, I got a job with Parks Canada and I was pretty thrilled by that. And then my life's just evolved since then. So you've sort of experienced quite a bit in the environmental sector. And I think under your tutelage, the Sierra Club, BC Sierra Club, did some interesting things. Yeah, I think what I, what I tried to do at the Sierra Club was I tried to, um, my experience at Sierra Club was when I moved to British Columbia from Saskatchewan in 1980, was the Sierra Club was kind of the go-to group, particularly on forestry. And so when I arrived at the Sierra Club, I, I just kind of had this image of wanting the Sierra Club to be a go-to group again. And I feel I accomplished that. Also, the other thing I tried to do is I tried to rebuild their forestry role and their role in forestry. And um, you can see now that a lot of the leading stuff that's being done on forestry in British Columbia is through the leadership of people like Caitlin Vernon and Mark Worthing and Jens Wheating. And Jens is terrific because what he brings is that, that carbon perspective and the role of forests and the carbon conversation. I feel pretty good about that. And uh, I think just from my perspective, I think that my career has been eclectic, but it's always been focused. And so kind of in summary, I've spent about a third of my life in government and about a third of my life running nonprofit societies and about a third of my career has been self-employed. And throughout that, I have volunteered for probably, I don't know, 30 organizations and I've been the founding chair of about half a dozen. And so I think what I've just tried to do what I wanted to do, leave a bit of a legacy, and at the same time, try to do uh, the environmental stuff at a community level, because I think that's where really good work gets done. You and I've had a number of conversations about, you know, how successful we've been in the environmental sector. And, you know, there's so many of, of you guys working so long and so hard. What do you think are the 
some of the barriers that the environmental sector is still facing today um, in terms of trying to change the system? Well, it's frustrating. So I think some of the things that come to mind is that, you know, I've never made a lot of money. <laughs> you know, I, you know, that's not any way to discount how privileged I am, but I've never really made a lot of money. And that hasn't been, been my focus. My focus has been to do what I want, what I wanted to do. But I don't think the world, the environmental world is welcoming in a lot of ways. There's a lot of jargon. There are a lot of conversations can be very complex. And to just to say, I want to work in the environmental movement and step into this is very, very difficult. I think there's some barriers there. I think it's getting better, but certainly when I started, it was almost impossible for for, for women to get involved in any kind of decent kind of role. And I think the other thing certainly has been, for me, one of the difficulties or challenges has been what you're doing. You're working in a field and of work in which you also love. And so then, you know, it's hard to be dispassionate. And as I look over my 40 years of doing what I've done, if I had to say whether I'd been successful or not, one measure would be the state of the world. And certainly in the 40 years since I've been involved, the world's and the environment and the biodiversity is severely deteriorated. So I could say, well, heck, I, I was a total failure. You know, the number of birds are fewer. You know the story. Uh, the first lecture I heard on climate change was in 1971. And uh, the person predicted at that time that was uh, kind of a, a conversation and a dilemma that humans probably weren't going to be able to uh, get their head around. And that was predictable and true. And so on one, one measure, um, you could take yourself into the sewer pretty quickly and say, listen, you know, what I've done hasn't been much value at all. But then I think of the, the effect I've had on individuals. I, I don't know, a couple of people every year come up to me and say, well, I just want to thank you for what you do. And uh, that means a lot. And I think the other legacy is the organizations and the, and the work that continues to be done, even though I may not be directly involved in those organizations, I've had some influence on them. You've been chair of the Nature Canada Board as well. So you've been involved in, the, you know, their campaign for protected spaces. We seem to be making some movement on that. You know, the federal government has now committed to 25% of protected spaces. And then we've got the, you know, planting of billions and trillions of trees worldwide. So, you know, I guess, yeah, I, we haven't changed the political agenda maybe enough. Do you think we've hit some critical tipping points that we're moving forward now? Well, you know, I, I call myself an optimistic realist. So my answer to your question, of course, is yes. And so an optimistic realist, uh, the way I kind of define that is that I'm always optimist. And I always look to this federal government or wherever, and I say, boy, those are really good initiatives. The other hand, I'm a realist, and I know how severe the situation is and, and how urgent the matters are that we face. So whether this optimism will be able to fit the reality and we will be able to kind of get beyond uh, the, the situation we're in, on my good days, uh, you know, way down deep, I, I say yes. And on my bad days, way down deep, I kind of whether we will be able to pull it off. But I think what the federal government's doing right now is very good. You know, you've got the 30 by 30, 50 by 50. The other conversation, which is really interesting, I think, is that um, is the 
conversation that people like Harvey Locke and whatever are pushing, uh, nature needs half. So the nature needs half stuff is really, really important. And when that first started to be brought out, um, people said, oh my God, we're going to be setting uh, half the world's going to be park. Well, that isn't what the concept is at all. But I think that whole idea of nature, nature needing half is, is really exciting. And you piece that together with uh, um, having models around the world like Yellowstone to Yukon, where you can have, you know, nature-based conservation done on a huge scale. Um, there are lots of conversations around the world now about having, you know, Y to Ys around the world. So Y2Y is an abbreviation for the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. They're a U.S.-Canada organization working to connect and protect vital habitat between the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the U.S. and Canada's Yukon Territory. Many animals move around and migrate long distances in search of habitat, food, shelter, and mates, so they really need room to roam. Grizzly bears, for example, need a wide range to maintain healthy populations. But as humans continue to expand our footprint and build massive roadways, we fragment their habitat. This makes movement difficult and dangerous. That's why improving landscape connectivity and creating safe passage for animals between habitats is so important. There's some really good stuff happening. But in the meantime, though, nature's taken a bit of a kicking. You know, I remember as a kid, you know, you'd step outside, there'd be songbirds all over the place and swallows in the air. I was out for a walk this morning and I heard a robin, uh, maybe a wren, a uh, couple towies. But there certainly wasn't a wealth of song, oh, and, and a barred owl, but there certainly wasn't a wealth of song. And I look up into the sky now, and there aren't swallows. And so you just wonder how nature or whether nature is going to be able to recover. Yeah, I know. And as you know, well, no, having been in the trenches for so long, there's no recovery from extinction. Once we hit that final number, that's it. So... Um, what I want to ask you then is how have you how have you persevered? You know what what keeps you going? I, I mean, I know in my world of climate science, it's uh, science is pretty dire. Well, a couple of things. I mean, I've been in the sewer a couple of times. What happens is, I guess uh, the overwhelming nature of it all just kind of pulls you down. And what I do is that you know I'm in the outdoors every day. I I make the real effort to pursue my my interests around. Uh, you know, birding and just, just being outside and loving, loving nature. I've done that ever since I was a kid. I take care of my health. And so that's that really helpful. I've got surrounded by lots of friends and, <laughs> and family that really believe in what I, in what I do. And, and all that is a basis for, for doing it. And what I find as well now, too, is I don't read kind of the dire books that I used to. I remember there was a book, it'd be about 10, 12 years ago, and now it was called hot, flat, and crowded. And, uh, oh, the author's a very well-known author in the States. And um, hot was climate change. Flat was all about technology. And crowded was over overpopulation. So it kind of pulled these three things together. And I remember just being really grumpy after reading that book. And by coincidence, I happened to have a doctor's appointment. And I was just mentioning to my doctor that I was feeling kind of crummy and down. And and he asked me what I'd been reading, and I told him, and he said, don't read that stuff. You know, you know, you know enough. You don't need to read that stuff, that negative kind of way of uh, kind of viewing things. And it, it, sure, there's some realism in there, but I don't need to do that. So I try to engage in positive conversations. I'm doing uh, work at the community level. 
I work and volunteer for organizations that I feel is worth my time and energy, such as Nature Canada. And so that's kind of where I go for my energy. And that doesn't mean I don't have bad days and bad spells. But, you know, hit wood, I haven't, I haven't been in the sewer for five, six, seven, eight years. So, uh, and, uh, and I'm still, as I say, I'm an optimistic realist. And that kind of reframing has really helped me a lot. I think it's, yeah, how you frame the issue is critically important. And you remind me of what uh, someone similar to you, another activist, Greta Thunberg, said, you get hope by doing, by yeah. acting. Yeah. Simple, but yeah. it's true. That's right. Yeah. So that nature needs half, I find really illustrative because it makes us realize we can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't keep developing at the rate that we're developing and taking all the space. You and I were at a co uh, the same conference about two weeks ago in Ottawa called Nature-Based Solutions, which I found really interesting. So I wondered if you wanted to talk about a little about Nature-Based Solutions and what you thought. And as well, the other thing I learned about was Indigenous Guardians, uh, which I found a very novel concept of, of providing economic opportunities for Indigenous communities, but around Indigenous protected areas. The Indigenous Guardians program was created to empower communities to manage ancestral lands according to traditional laws and values. Guardians monitor ecological health, maintain cultural sites, protect sensitive areas and species, play a vital role in creating land use and marine use plans, and also promote intergenerational sharing of Indigenous knowledge. In many ways, it's a win-win solution as the program helps protect the environment while providing meaningful employment for people, especially in rural communities. Check out our episode notes to learn more about this program. The nature-based solution is uh, makes total sense. And basically, in a lot of ways, what it's saying is if you keep nature healthy, humans will be healthy because humans are so dependent on air and water and soil and, and the basic ingredients of nature. And if we start to really mess up the air, the water, the soil, and, uh, and the atmosphere, it ain't no good. <laughs> and so... Uh, I think really what nature-based solutions are saying is, you know, we've got to really be thoughtful about keeping nature healthy. If nature stays healthy, we'll be healthy. And then some of the examples they were using there was parks and protected areas. And also from an equity point of view, uh, these parks and protected areas need to be more Indigenous-based, which is really exciting. And then what they're also talking there about is kind of green infrastructure. You know, you think of the assets that some municipalities have and rather than, say, building a dam and spending, you know, X number of dollars and having to, you know, go back every five or eight years and make sure that dam's solid, why not put a really good amount of money into a nice, nice wetland, which would then store the water and also provide ecological services. So what exactly are nature-based solutions? They focus on enhancing ecosystems to help tackle a variety of issues, including climate change and biodiversity loss. The International Union for Conservation of Nature describes them as actions to protect, sustainably manage, and restore natural or modified ecosystems that address societal challenges effectively and adaptively, simultaneously providing human well-being and biodiversity benefits. So an example of a nature-based solution is planting native vegetation along and above a riverbank. This helps stabilize the soil and can reduce sediment runoff into the water. This benefits local water quality and fish migration as well. In cities, nature-based solutions can be green roofs, rain gardens, urban forests, or even native vegetation on road verges. So that whole thing about the ecological services that nature can provide is 
quite exciting as well. And so it was a good conversation. I had a conversation with someone there, though, saying that, well, really, we've been talking about this for 20 or 30 years. And so what's the difference? <laughs> and so, again, you go back to this frustration of, oh, if we only listened to ourselves in the late 70s and early 80s. And so all the principles we're talking about are similar. I was asked to speak at a tourism conference the second week of January, I think it was. And, and in preparing for the tourism conference, I remembered that when I was executive director of CPAWS. CPAWS is? It's a Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. Thanks. And their focus is around parks and wilderness. Uh, when I was at CPAWS in the early 80s, a number of us put together a, a conference about tourism. Is it a Faustian bargain? And all the principles we're talking about now about carrying capacity and making sure tourism's a benefit to the community. And we can't, you know, we've got to be really thoughtful about the pollution that's associated with tourism. It's exactly what we talked about in the early 80s. You know, I don't want to sound as if I'm some kind of old fuddy-duddy, but I think that, you know, we so often people think that what they're talking about is new and it isn't. And there must be some way we can bring and um, remind people that these fundamentals are the same fundamentals as they have been for decades. And is there some way that we can kind of move forward without forgetting the past? Yeah, that um, failure to learn from our history dooms us to keep repeating those patterns. Absolutely. So we live in the best of times and the worst of times where, you know, crime is down in most uh, developed countries, war is down, deaths from war. It doesn't seem that way when you've got the media lens on it. And that's why the reframing of the issues is really important. I don't know, what do you think of, you know, I do research in climate change adaptation and mitigation, and the latest IPC report is now referring to climate pollution. What do you think about communicating climate change more simply as climate pollution, for example? That might work. I'd have to think about it. I, I hadn't heard that phrase before. But I know that uh, there was a paper written in the late 70s, early 80s called The Psychology of Global Warming. And basically what that paper was saying that global warming is so far out there and so ephemeral that it's very, very difficult for humans to get their head around what it means. And it basically predicted that we're not going to pull this off. And here we are 40 years later. And suddenly, you know, it's right in front of us every day, you know, we're reading and hearing and seeing about the effect of climate. So I think it's real now and maybe framing it as pollution. Uh, so it's more. You can it, see it. Or... You can see it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's there rather than it's just a change that's going on in the sky or whatever, uh, that, that may work because we really have to make it real. And I, I keep reminding myself, too, of uh, um, what is it? Uh, if, we, if we just brought the door down tomorrow and stopped all use of carbon, period, done, there's a 100 to 150-year lag. It isn't just as simple as saying let's stop all use of carbon because we also have to continue to deal with the mitigation and the adaptation in the meantime as we go through this transition. 
What is climate change adaptation and mitigation? Adaptation refers to any adjustments humans make to help moderate the effects of climate change. This includes strategies like raising street levels in cities to reduce flooding damage or planting a variety of crops in anticipation of drought or tough growing conditions. Now, mitigation refers to any actions taken to reduce the rate or magnitude of climate change and the effects that go along with it. This includes strategies like phasing out fossil fuels, increasing energy efficiency, and transitioning to greener energy sources. So we've got some big problems, and I'm going to close with sort of a difficult uh, last question for you. So we've got a Trump on one hand and a Greta Thunberg on the other. How do you reconcile those? Well, you can't. You can't have a dialogue if one, one person refuses to dialogue. And, and so I don't think you can reconcile them. But I think that what's really, really clear there is there are kind of, I don't know, what do I want to call it, kind of two basic paradigms there. One is that, uh, you know, it's kind of the future and uh, being caring for people. And another one saying, well, yeah, but this is the way we've always done. We'll continue to do it. We can grow our way out of this. And again, you need to go back, uh, the limits to growth. When was that uh, written in the late 1970s? 70s? I think. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. You know, and so there's, so I think we just have to come to the realization that isn't the people like Greta or people like ourselves who are really concerned about the future. We aren't saying there shouldn't be any growth, but we just have to start to do what we're doing in a very, very thoughtful way. And so do we need more big fancy buildings in downtown whatever city when maybe those monies could be better used to deal with the inequality that we have in today's society? And as long as there are a lot of people who are really concerned about their future and really concerned about the day-to-day -day stuff and don't feel any certainty that they're going to be okay, it's going to be very, very difficult for all of society to come to grips with this. And I think we also really need leadership, like Trudeau. I mean, uh, not to say that in a partisan kind of way, but I think that Trudeau right now is being a voice out there for the value and importance of the envir environment and nature. I remember hearing him speak one time, and you could just feel that this is really heartfelt for him. What he was saying, one of his memories was, and he thinks he was about four or five years old, he was out paddling with his dad in a canoe, and he reached over the side of the canoe and got a cup of water and drank it. And he remembers that. And it's one of those things that stayed with him. And I remember him saying in his talk, everyone should have the opportunity, one, to go canoeing. But the other thing is to have the opportunity to have clean water, to have those kinds of natural experiences that there are in the out of doors. And so some of this for me goes back to Richard Louv's work about a nature deficit disorder. And part of what we're doing here is we, we have to really reconnect with nature and the role that nature has in who we are as humans. And uh, we've really lost touch with that. We have to remember that, you know, the, the facile nature, really what a lot of capitalism is about and represents, whereas the real things in this world are nature-based. And nature is the foundation, actually, of all life in exactly. many, many ways. Exactly. But it's more than just, you know, there's this push on ecosystem services and what nature provides for us. But, but nature brings beauty and brings oh, aesthetics yeah. exactly. and, and sound into our life. Yeah. Well, you know, again, the, the, the literature about how um, not being in the out of doors harms the formation of the brain and affects our senses and our immunization system. And a lot of the vulnerability that we have today as individuals and as a 
kind of as human communities is because we haven't got that nature base in our life. So not only do solutions for climate change need to be nature-based, the humans need to be nature-based and we need to get back to that. We started this conversation and you said you weren't sure that you'd made a difference. Greta Thunberg said that she didn't think that the climate strikes had made much of a difference. I think she's wrong. I think that the climate strikes, the marches, has now put climate change front and center. And I think you, Bob Pert, have made a phenomenal difference to the environment and your leadership in the environmental sector. Well, thank you for that, Anne. I do believe that. As I say, on my bad days, I have trouble with that. But on my good days, I really do believe that. And hopefully I'll be able to continue contributing for another 15 or 20 years. So thank you, Anne. Thanks for listening to What the F*** is Biodiversity. Today's episode was produced by Lotu Media and the National Environmental Treasure and edited by B. Joel Cran. The music was also composed by B. Joel Cran. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about our NGO, which we call NET for short, visit our website at OurSafetyNet.org. Also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to help us spread the word about biodiversity, you can find us on Canada Helps.